0: Good morning. Thank you all for being here today. Uh, The name of this case is uh, Courtney Moss versus the State of Indiana. Counsel for appellant is uh, Brian Woodward. Uh, Did I get that correct? Yes. And and sitting with him is Mr. Bates, Mark Bates. Uh, Appellate's counsel is Sierra Murray. And sitting with Ms. Murray is, oh man, pronounce your name for me yes thank you and welcome Um, okay so uh, let's see uh, Mr. Woodward uh, you will start you uh, have 20 minutes you've asked for 18 uh, and a two-minute rebuttal is that accurate all right you may proceed sir
1: may it please the court Brian Woodward on behalf of Courtney Moss, Your Honors, we're asking that Mr. Moss's conviction be reversed or alternatively uh, that his matter be remanded for a new trial. I'd like to start out, um, just briefly cover the facts for those uh, students that are here, if that's okay. Um, On August 22nd of 2020, in the evening hours in Gary, Indiana, Courtney Moss, along with four of his compatriots were at an establishment called Bugsy's Bar in Gary, Indiana. They were in the parking lot when Mr. Rayvon Harris happened to come by.
0: What were they doing in the parking lot?
1: Well, they were smoking marijuana, Your Honor. Smoking weed, right. They were. Uh, Also during that time, and it's undisputed that Mr. Moss, Mr. Akins, and Mr. Miles, two of his compatriots, were carrying firearms, handguns.
0: Rayvon Harris approached... Before you go to uh, continue with that, uh, uh, tell us a little bit about about the firearms that they were carrying at the time uh, uh, and how many had had them, two?
1: There were three of them that had firearms. We know no less than two of them at the time of the incident had firearms inside of the Save gas station, which was across the street. We know that, um, I believe... Two were 9 millimeters and one was a different caliber. It escapes me, I think it was a 40 caliber, but it was a different caliber, we know that. And one was was a
0: rifle though, correct? Yes. Almost a rifle type of automatic weapon uh, or uh, semi-automatic, not an AK-47, but kind of looked like. Maybe an AR. Right. AR type firearm. your
2: client had the
1: Glock 43. He had a Glock 43 9 millimeter, that's correct, Your Honor. Thank you. So Mr. Rayvon Harris approached the group and for some reason um, he and Mr. Miles crossed the street to the Save gas station. They went in. The others followed Mr. Moss on foot, Mr. Jones and uh, Mr. Akins in a vehicle. When they got into the gas station, uh, Mr. Miles and Mr. Harris got into an argument over what it's unknown. We know that there was some aggressive talk, and at one point, Mr. Harris, who ultimately died, said to, to the others, F y'all, I'll kill all y'all. That was his statement. At that, Mr. Jones reached out and struck Mr. Harris, and a fight ensued.
0: Well, let's when, Go ahead, Pete. Uh,
3: when that was stated by Mr. Harris, I'm going to kill you all, or something to that effect. He kind of pulled his fist up, did he not? He did. Right. Okay.
0: And I want to go back to Mr. Jones and, and his striking of uh, Mr. Harris. Uh, it wasn't like he was standing there. He actually went around the corner and then just kind of blindsided him and stole on him, so to speak, I think is the, is the street language. Yeah, correct? I, I
1: think that's an accurate representation of what okay. happened then. And, and, um,
0: Mr. Harris didn't see him coming. It's clear from the video.
3: I think that is clear. And, and I may uh, jump in there just for the the audience's uh, knowledge as well. The reason the, the court and, and the attorney can depict the scene how they are, they can in some respect is because there is a video surveillance that was provided as part of the evidence in the case rather than just um, witness testimony so it it it, it fills in a picture that it often is painted by testimony in a different way. Percy.
1: Uh, that's exactly right, Your Honor, and I was just going to mention that fact. Along with the uh, video, there were several still frames taken from that video and introduced separately into the trial as exhibits, one of which I'm going a couple of which I'm going to speak about a little later in the argument.
2: So during the course of this altercation, it's clear the victim it becomes clear later the victim is unarmed.
1: Well, that's not entirely true. Okay. Because at one point, Mr. Harris and Mr. Miles began what Mr. Jones described as tussling, um, which is uh, they were just wrestling, I guess. That's what they were doing. They were wrestling. Well, Mr. Uh, Miles dropped his firearm. So he and Mr. Harris were scrambling for it on the ground. I think Mr. Jones. Uh, at one point, says that Mr. Harris had his hand on the gun,
2: but he didn't own any of the guns.
1: No, he didn't bring a gun to the fight, so to speak. Okay, but it may be the fact that he had possession of a gun at some point is, during is the altercation. It
2: clear from the record that the only one that fired the Glock forty-three nine millimeter was Mr. Moss. That's correct. Okay,
1: um, Mr. Jones, who testified at trial says that he heard a gun go off and instantly felt pain in his leg. Um, Although we can't, I don't think we can see it from the record, but uh, Mr. Jones had to uh, have part of his leg removed as a result of that injury. In the end, Mr. Harris was shot seven times. Four of those shots, according to the... um, forensic pathologist would have been fatal individually. Three of those shots were either superficial or non-fatal. It's clear, um, Judge Weissman, that Mr. Moss fired four times. They know that because they found the casings and they recovered the weapon after Mr. Moss had transported Mr. Jones to the hospital on the way leaving the hospital that um, Mr. Has, Moss was picked that up. That
2: weapon has a, a six uh, shot magazine, right?
1: So we, magazine. Okay. Six but, in the magazine, the one in the chamber. The, I think it I think it carries seven. Okay. It can carry it seven. It can carry seven, up to but seven. there
2: there were only four recovered at the scene. Correct. And part of your biggest complaint is that the trial court didn't give your instruction on aggravated battery. That's correct. Okay. So would you agree that aggravated battery is not an inherently included offense of murder?
1: No. I disagree with that, Your okay. Honor. So
2: you disagree with our decision in Denby, where we said that aggravated battery is not inherently included under Waddle and Powell, because uh, I think the example we gave in Denby was you can shoot at a, a victim with an attempt, attempt to kill, but you can miss completely. So that would be a substantial step towards murder, but it wouldn't be aggravated battery because aggravated battery requires some sort of injury. So that was our analysis in Denby. So you disagree with that?
1: I do. And the reason I disagree with this is, is as follows. Under the included statute, included offense statute, and under wright young uh, Larkin and layman all four of those cases by the Indiana Supreme Court uh Are those under
2: the Waddle Powell Yes.
0: Cases? Yes. Those right is a pre Waddle. So Waddle is the state Wright is now. from
1: the 90s 96 yes. okay. or, or, or so, so I want
2: to You acknowledge say. that Waddle and Powell gave us a new map to follow. It did. which we followed in Denby. Correct. And we found that it wasn't inherently included. It could be factually included depending on how the state would charge, but the state didn't charge aggravated battery.
1: No, they didn't. But I think even if we set aside inherent inclusion for the lesser-included offense, I think factually they did charge it in such a manner that it was factually included. Because, And we can look to Denby, uh for the answer to that question because we know that they charged just a straight murder and they didn't in this case the state didn't charge the means by which the murder was committed but the state did file an enhancement a firearm enhancement indicating that the murder was committed by a firearm so now we have the means and if if the roles were reversed and it was the state that wanted an aggravated battery instruction and if the defendant had objected saying hey i didn't have notice that this was even on the table i think the defendant would lose that battle because the defendant would have notice that a gun was used and so we don't have merely a recitation of the statute without any means, we have the means themselves.
2: But how do we get to this being instructional error? The, the court didn't give the instruction on an aggravated battery. Why is that er- erroneous? Why should we reverse on that basis?
1: Well, first we we have to go through the right analysis. Steps one or two or three. So if I understand, Your Honor, um, what was the prejudice? I believe... is. The
0: this. how do we get to it i mean we can start with the with the basic uh at the time it was uh, uh that you did not you weren't the trial attorney were you I was not. Yeah. But the trial attorney in this case uh, just basically said, Judge, I want an aggravated battery uh, uh, instruction, Uh, did not present that to the court, Uh, just kind of did all that orally. And would you concede and agree with me that uh, because of the manner and the procedure in which uh, he proposed that instruction, that this is waived because he didn't follow the right protocol?
1: No, we disagree with that. Uh, and, And I set that out in our brief, and I cover that because obviously we knew it was going to be an issue And um, a couple things. First of all, the state is not raising it on appeal. So I think they've waived the waiver, so to speak, Um, which you can certainly do. And uh, they discussed it at length. In those cases we discuss in our brief, if everyone is aware at the trial court level what's being requested, what instruction's being requested, and it's discussed in length, which it was, then certainly it hasn't been waived. And as a matter of fact, the trial court, I think, lends a statement to the effect that, well, the evidence really isn't clear if that last shot hit Mr. Harris.
2: Sir, I want you to talk a little bit about the serious evidentiary dispute because that's what the trial court landed on. The trial court said this isn't an aggravated battery case. There's no serious evidentiary dispute that I can rely on to give this instruction. Can you speak to that?
1: Yes, Your Honor, I'd be happy to. Um, We know there are four shots that we're talking about. The exhibits that I was referring to earlier, they're basically exhibits 32, 33 through 40, 42, right on that, um, and they show certain bullets that were recovered. We know, for a fact, one of those bullets came from the 9-millimeter 43 Glock. It did,
2: it was... Do we it, it have was to parse the evidence like that, though? You have the difference between murder, which is knowingly killing somebody with a high probability that you're engaging in killing. You have aggravated battery, which is an infliction of injury with risk of death. We have a defendant here who is carrying a Glock 43 9-millimeter, right, so this is not a BB gun. It's not even, if you look at the caliber of weapons, it's not a 22. As you go up in range of deadliness, it, it's a more serious weapon that people typically buy and carry for self-defense because it's, it's deadly. So the fact that he is shooting that, isn't that enough for him to be aware of the high probability that he's engaged in killing? Not at all. When you're yep. shooting, it would it, be, it would it be different if he had a, a BB gun? I mean, I think your argument would be stronger if he was shooting him with a BB gun. If he's shooting him with a Glock 43.9 millimeter, how, how can you get to the point where you're saying there's a serious evidentiary dispute about what his intent is? This, is?
1: this is why we can say there's a serious evidentiary dispute. And, and I've thought about this at length. And you know, we sit here and the students sit here and I don't know how many have fired a handgun but, and I'm gonna refer this back to the exhibits, but if you set everyone up and gave them one shot at a two foot by two foot target from 10 feet away with a nine millimeter Glock, half of them would miss the paper. They wouldn't even get on the paper.
2: If it was the first so, time they were shooting it, but, but, if they, but they had some experience. I, I think,
3: and I'll let you go where you're going, um, but I guess as a, uh, to put it in your mind, my question on that is because if it's, aware of a high probability to be engaged in killing. So what is the, under the aggravated battery, are you stating that it was his intent to only do a flesh wound and injure? I don't don't think we have
1: to determine what exactly his intent was because that's not the standard that we're operating
3: under. Well, putting, pretty, pointing a firearm at somebody and unloading four rounds in close contact, just as you gave the example that people are not always going to hit the target, doesn't that um, get over the bar of not being a serious evidentiary dispute, that they're aware of a high probability you may be engaged in killing? In other words, the chaos of the scene, the the inaccuracies of of controlling where your projectile goes, all of that leads to, uh, from the state's point of view, the conclusion that there is no serious evidentiary dispute, that you have accepted the consequence of killing. I think the question
1: presumes that, in fact, he was pointing the weapon at the individual. We know he missed three times. The the evidence is almost indisputable that he missed three times or at least the state didn't put any evidence in the record that he hit von harris more more than once if he even hit him one time so i don't know why
0: there's several through and through gunshot wounds though i mean the, the bullets went through and one ended up in a seven up can and i mean it, I'm not sure how you can say it. I mean, he was shot six times. I, I don't know how you can say he, was, he missed three times. It's but
1: d- because there's no indication that he, any of those bullets that were found, remember, there were more than seven total shots. I, I'm trying to recall the, the total number, but I, I want to say it was in the teens. Um,
2: but seven hit him,
1: correct? Se- seven hit him. Okay. That's, Thank you. that's seven hit him, and four were in fact fatal. There's no evidence in the record, anywhere in the record, that one of those shots came from that 9-millimeter Glock. The state presented absolutely no evidence of that fact. And we know those bullets that were re- recovered. Um,
2: but isn't it a little bit much to say that a person who's firing a 9-millimeter Glock four to six times in close proximity to another person is aware of a high probability that there is going to be killing. I mean, I don't think that's a big leap, right? With you, you buy a gun for protection, you know it's a deadly weapon.
1: Well, as far as the knowing element is concerned, right. By the same token, aggravated battery only takes a knowing infliction of battery, also.
3: So, we, you can't tell where he was aiming, and well, I, Was there evidence then, because the other wounds, the non-fatal wounds, are, are gunshot wounds to a leg or a calf, correct? I think it was thigh. Thigh, yeah. right. But the non, are in the legs, extremities. Somewhere in the legs. All right, lower extremities, we'll yeah. go there. Um, and so, you're, you're reciting that there's no evidence the state has to link that firearm to the fatal wounds. Conversely, is there evidence in the record to tie that firearm, without a doubt, to the extremity wounds?
1: None, absolutely none. Okay. He may have missed all four times, and that's why there's a serious evidentiary dispute, and that's why the instruction should have been given. Maybe he should have been charged with attempted murder.
3: I don't know. But Certainly it wouldn't seem like the reasonable how thing to do. does the fact that he missed support the requested instruction of aggravated battery well
1: again we have to go back to is it a lesser included offense either inherently or factually and just for the sake of argument conceding it's not inherent but i i think it is because if you look at the statute and what the statute says is a lesser included offense It's a lesser harm right we have a substantial injury or substantial likelihood of death as opposed to a death itself and they're both knowingly and we have a gun we have a battery and murder as we know is battery i've run out of my initial time
0: you got two minutes for the end. two
1: minutes for rebuttal thank you thank you mr
0: woodward okay ms murray
4: Thank you. And may it please the court. Yes. This court should affirm Moss's conviction for murder for three reasons. First, the trial court did not abuse its discretion by declining a jury instruction on aggravated battery because there's no serious evidentiary dispute as to Moss's intent at the time of the murder. Second, the evidence overwhelmingly supports Moss's conviction. And third, the trial court did not abuse its discretion by admitting a photograph of Moss after he was apprehended because that photograph is relevant and more probative than prejudicial.
0: So I think just by your your opening statement, we know uh, what your position is with regard to the aggravated battery. Um, And my colleagues may have some questions for that. But one of the other issues, as you just stated, uh, was sufficiency of the evidence. And uh, why don't you talk a little bit about that and why why you think the state's evidence is sufficient. Absolutely,
4: Your Honor. And that also speaks to the lack of a serious evidentiary dispute uh, as to the jury instruction in this issue. The evidence is overwhelming here. We have Mr. Moss shooting the defendant in close proximity multiple times to the torso. That's a place on the body that we know vital organs are stored. If you're going to shoot that area, there is a high probability someone will die. We also have Mr. Moss's own testimony, admitting to shooting the victim purposefully at least twice. We also have Mr. Jones' testimony, where he states that Mr. Moss shot the victim. And on top of all of this, We have two surveillance videos that depict the shooting itself. All of this is overwhelming evidence that Mr. Moss committed this murder.
3: Well, let me ask you this. The question brought up by uh, counsel was that there is no evidence um, linking any of the fatal wounds to the Glock, Mr. Moss's Glock.
4: I disagree, Your Honor. Uh, The evidence shows that there were four cartridge casings that were specifically tied to the weapon that was held by the defendant, as well as the spent bullets that were recovered, are in line with these fatal wounds that were inflicted.
3: But the but the expert testimony was was um, not concrete that that the ballistics of the because only one um, bullet fragment remained in his body, correct?
4: Yes, that is correct.
3: And, and when that was an, analyzed by the expert, I think the testimony was is that it wasn't, um, couldn't be affirmatively or, or conclusively linked to that Glock firearm. Is that you correct? You are right. It okay. w- could
4: not be included or excluded as right. coming from that particular weapon. Uh, it is worthy to note that there are only two identified shooters here and that the fatal wounds on the victim, three of them were inflicted on the left side. If you refer to the video, you can see that Mr. Moss is the only shooter who is able to inflict these three fatal wounds. And the so the other-
0: audience, going back to the to the facts of this case so they understand, Mr. Harris is literally laying on the ground, correct?
4: At some point, yes, your honor.
0: And Mr. Moss along with the other two, Mr. Moss is standing up over him.
4: Absolutely. As he's on
0: the ground. I mean, that that close, correct?
4: Yes, Your Honor.
0: Okay, all right. And yes. that's why you say that the evidence is overwhelming in that Absolutely, regard. yes. There's a third firearm, though.
4: There is a third we've firearm.
0: We've talked about two
3: firearms. We've yes. talked about Mr. Moss's Glock, and we've talked about the rifle that comes in at the very end, and I think there are two shots discharged from that weapon.
4: That we know of.
3: That we know of. Um, the third weapon is Mr. Thomas, Thomas, yeah. Thomas, who was really the instigator with the fight yes. with Mr. Harris, right? So he's the lead combatant in the, their physical altercation. And that weapon, do we have ballistics from it that tie it to the leg of Mr jones
4: we have no physical evidence whatsoever showing that that weapon was shot nor do we have testimony showing that that weapon was shot do you
3: have any ballistics that would show any spent casings linked specifically to that
4: to that to thomas's weapon your honor Correct. no there's absolutely nothing to show a void that, of evidence there exactly okay. all of the physical evidence ties back to mr moss's gun uh the two spent bullets that were recovered which it makes perfect sense that we would find these bullets uh, outside of the body when we have through and through shots which we do have on mr harris Um, not only that but i'd like to speak to the fact that uh, there's a complaint that there's nothing found on these particular bullets if you look at where these bullets were found they are found in soda it would be unlikely that we would find anything of value on these bullets when they are found literally in a, a can of pop as well as a cooler sitting in, in some soda as well. Uh, but,
0: but it doesn't necessarily affect the markings uh, on the bullets.
4: No, uh, Your Honor, and certainly I mean. one of those bullets was definitively connected to the Glock, and one could not be included or excluded. So you're absolutely right that the physical markings could still be tied to a weapon in some way. I was speaking more to if there was any biological matter I get you. Um, still on those weapons. Right.
3: And, and as to maybe jump back into the instruction issue, um, there was an instruction on murder, which was found guilty yes. by the jury, correct? Yes, Your Honor. And there was an alternate instruction of reckless homicide, was there not?
4: No, there was an alternate instruction on voluntary manslaughter, uh, voluntary Your Honor. Manslaughter. There was also a um, self-defense instruction given right. as well. Okay. All of these theories were rejected by the jury and when they found him guilty of murder. Can
2: we talk a little bit about the murder versus the aggravated batteries? Absolutely. First? The murder is its a high level of intentionality. Yes. Um, the mens rea is that you're knowingly killing. You don't have to intentionally kill, but you're knowingly killing, aware of a high probability that you're engaged in killing. And aggravated battery is just the infliction of injury with the risk of death. And I, I talked with the uh, defense counsel a little bit about is it about the the weapon that the defendant had. It's a Glock forty three nine millimeter. That's a pretty powerful weapon. I think you know if you look at guns, you have caliber ranges that that go up and the killing power increases with the the, the bore. So this is kind of a medium bore weapon that is used for self-defense. Can you ever discharge a weapon like a Glock 43 and be engaged in an aggravated battery versus uh, a murder or a knowing or intentional killing given the force and the purpose of that device or that tool?
4: Not in these circumstances, Your Honor, not when you are in this close proximity, not when you administer this many shots, um, and certainly not to this particular part of the body that is, at a minimum, a knowing murder.
2: Is that because of the type of weapon it is, or is it because of the proximity? Would, Would we have a
4: different case if he had a BB gun? We'd be closer to a different case, certainly. Certainly, Your Honor. So it absolutely speaks to the type of weapon, as you've noted, but it also speaks to the totality of the circumstances that we have here. The number of shots, the proximity of the shooter to the victim, the placement of the shots in particular,
2: all show- So would the argument be stronger if he had a 22 caliber instead of a nine millimeter? As As we range up in lethality of the weapon, does that bear on the, the men's rea for the person firing the weapon. I certainly think out. it
4: speaks to the amount of harm they intend to inflict, whether that is simply harm or death. So uh, yes, I do believe that the type of weapon, the caliber of ammunition, that absolutely do speaks to Do we know intent. what
2: type of ammunition was loaded in this gun? Was it defense caliber or was it range weapon? Do we know what it, the bullets uh, were?
4: My understanding is that it was a nine millimeter, forgive me, I cannot recall, the specifics of the ammunition. Okay, I do so apologize. there was no analysis done on whether, uh, and you know what defense ammunition is, right? The ammunition. I that apologize it's, for my my lack of knowledge as to different types of ammunition, Your Honor. The, I the type that explodes when it enters a body. Yes. Right? So it's it's
2: meant to cause more harm. Yes. Uh, range ammunition, which is loaded
4: with less powder, right? Uh, but we don't know that information. I don't believe we have that information. I cannot recall it off the top of my head, and I do apologize for that, Your Honor, but I absolutely think you've hit the nail on the head as far as identifying the type of weapon and the type of caliber used can absolutely speak to intent. There are types of weapons and types of calibers that would inflict more injury, and I think you absolutely spoke eloquently to that point that it can speak to intent. Not only that, but we, we have Mr. Moss, admitting to purposefully shooting the victim multiple times. He essentially said, yes, I shot him and I intended to shoot him. We have Mr. Moss administering a final shot simply because he wants to ensure this individual never gets up off the ground once again.
0: And what was his testimony after he fired the final shot? Why did he say he fired the final shot?
4: He asserted, well, he said the victim moved yep. was the test he was
0: still moving correct the
4: victim moved absolutely this also goes to um, a point made in the briefing that the victim may have died prior to any of these shots by mr moss and that simply does not bear out in the evidence not only do we have medical testimony saying that the wounds when inflicted the individual was alive but we also have the victim still alive on camera after the shooting as well.
0: You can see him moving his hands uh, after everyone's left and as you stated as well in the autopsy findings it shows based on the tissue that was uh, uh, viewed that it shows that uh, Mr. Harris was still alive uh, at that time. I want to uh, kind of talking, staying on the sufficiency of the evidence, and and actually, um, Mr. Woodward mentions this in his brief. If was an accomplice liability instruction uh, given in this case.
4: It was not given. However, the trial court explicitly told the state that they may argue accomplice liability, and they did so. And this could absolutely be sustained on accomplice liability. There's no need to have an instruction in order to do so. This court recognized that in Suggs versus State, a uh, an opinion from 2008, that. You could absolutely sustain this conviction on accomplice so, liability. And,
0: and for the op- op, uh, the audience, accomplice liability basically just states if two people go together to commit a crime, they're both responsible for the, each other's action. Is that correct?
4: Absolutely. And it is so when we you know. A- induce or cause another to commit right. an offense.
0: Right. And so we know one of those guns killed the victim in this case. And. Does it, under an accomplice liability uh, theory, does it even matter whether or not we can identify uh, what bullet came from
4: that? It does not, Your Honor. That is absolutely correct. He is still guilty under accomplice liability, which was explicitly argued to the jury.
3: Let me jump back into the instruction issue um, on the uh, aggravated battery. And it just goes to, to remedy. If the court were to go along, and, and find that the the instruction offered by defense um, should have been granted. What is the remedy? What's the outcome? What, A new wo-
4: trial, Your Honor. Okay, would be the appropriate remedy. Yes.
3: And is there any? Do you concede that? Uh,
0: or no. Okay. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Ma- before, before you, you get no. to that the fact that an, how did you handle the fact that an, an instruction for aggravated battery was not tendered to the court do you find that that uh, constituted waiver
4: absolutely that could that could be waiver in this instance your honor by not tendering a specific instruction and just generally referring to a pattern instruction uh, the state did not argue that in our brief however this court absolutely could find waiver on that issue
0: um, and before we run out of time, there is yet a third issue in this case, correct?
4: There is, Your Honor. Uh, there was a photograph admitted of Mr. Moss directly after he was apprehended. He is sitting in a vehicle with his hands behind his back. Uh, there are no restraints viewable at all from this photograph. It depicted him as uh, the crime scene technician found the scene, the secondary scene, when they apprehended. So after the shooting, the participants fled Uh, Mr. Moss took Mr. Jones to the hospital and then he fled the hospital as well. He was pulled over, apprehended um, during a a typical uh, traffic stop. Forgive me, I believe it was a felony traffic stop. So um, there's really no prejudice here. This is simply showing the individual Uh, at that time, it is relevant to a number of issues, including not only his identity, as he was masked in the surveillance videos, and he is not masked, however, he's wearing all the same clothing. He is also wearing a St. Mary's Hospital Visitor Tag, which shows um, that he did drop Mr. Jones off to the hospital. This is particularly important. Let me me ask
3: this, jump in. And and on the idea of prejudice, was there other evidence or testimony of those things you just um, um, argued Um, that make the photo probative. In other words, were there evidence or testimony from the officers or any other persons as to the uh, badge from the visitor tag from the hospital, as to the appearance of Mr. Moss? In other words, the clothing matching what would be seen at the video, uh, by the video at the scene. Any of those other elements other than the photograph?
4: There were some other elements that covered some of these these same, same things. However, the photograph speaks to these issues in ways that the testimony simply, simply does not. And we know that when photographs are supported, support, supportive, forgive me, of testimony, that they are absolutely relevant and probative still. And here we have that, not only with his identity, but it also ties him to Jones. This is particularly important because he makes an incriminating statement to Jones on the way to the hospital. So this bolsters uh, Jones's testimony as well. It also ties him to the murder victim, or forgive me, the murder weapon that was found in his vehicle at that time. So.
3: Would have made a difference if, um, I mean, because, you know, the, the prejudicial value is that he's in custody, right? And in and, and the briefing from the, the defense counsel uh, brings up uh, that the jury's going to know he's handcuffed and know he's being held in custody, and that, that is the prejudicial element. Um, would it make a difference if the handcuffing had been visible?
4: It would certainly be more prejudicial. There are no visible restraints here. But to your point that this was a depiction of Mr. Moss at the time he was apprehended, that was explained to the jury. So there is no risk that they would believe was this. Was there an
3: objection to that testimony at trial from defense?
4: There was an objection to the photograph.
3: Only the photograph, not To the, the photograph,
4: desk. Your Honor. Yes, there was. And
3: but, there's, but looking there's fairly at the photograph, I mean, you, any person off the street will conclude that that person is in the back of a police car, and if you're sitting in the back of a police car with the, your arms not visible, you're cuffed. I mean, is Certainly that
4: a person could infer that that individual was in handcuffs from that photograph, although they are not um, blatantly shown. Uh, so I, the prejudicial value would be less than if they were visibly in restraints. However, I'd like to point this court to a... Uh, a case from our Indiana Supreme Court Wheeler versus State from 2001 their mugshot photographs from when the defendant was apprehended were admitted into evidence and the court found that that was the they were more probative than prejudicial under evidence rule 403 they said that by explaining to the jury that this photograph was taken for this particular case that that Reduced the prejudicial value of those photographs. Can
2: I steer you back for a moment? Can I ask you're...
0: one quick question be- on yes. this Absolutely. before we get back to those? Um, there, there's case law out there that says our jurors are, are intelligent people and they realize after somebody has just been involved in a shooting that they're most likely going to be in handcuffs. Is that correct?
4: Yes, Your Honor.
0: Okay, have
2: at it. Okay. I want to steer you back to the aggravated battery uh, instruction. It, do you believe that aggravated battery, is it a lesser included of murder, and does that matter for our balancing of whether an instruction should have been given? So that's a two-part question.
4: Absolutely. To answer the second part of that question, no, it does not matter, regardless of whether this is a, an inherently included or factually included, regardless of the answer to that question. There is no serious evidentiary dispute, and that is the determinative question in this case. But the fact that an offense can be included
2: lends credence to the argument that there could be an evidentiary dispute, because lesser included is interloping with the the underlying offense,
4: right? If you could perhaps rephrase or re-ask your question, I apologize, Your Honor. Okay,
2: so the, the fact that you have a series of laws where some are inherently included or factually included mean that these two different crimes are so similar that either the legislature has combined them in such a way that they're included within one another, or the facts and the way the prosecutor charges them means that they are so interwoven that the facts of one can't be relayed without the facts of the other, right? That's what we mean by inherently or factually included.
4: Yes, Your Honor. So
2: doesn't that lend credence to the defendant's argument that these cases are not so factually dissimilar, that this, the court should have given this instruction?
4: No, Your Honor, it's our position that they are, it is not factually or inherently included. Uh, to be inherently included, they would have to be established by the same or less than all of the elements of the offense. Here we have um, the intent to kill someone versus the intent to merely injure. Those are two completely different things. And we
2: decided in Denby that these two are not, mm-hmm. fact, or, are not included inherently.
4: Yes. But factually included, I'm not so sure. Factually included, Denby is the only case I've seen that has looked to a firearms enhancement to make that determination. It was slightly different context. It was a double jeopardy context and not a jury instruction context. This is a really interesting question. It was reserved and right in a footnote as far as whether a an offense that merely intends to inflict a lesser harm. Is that an inherently included offense? That has not been answered and it was explicitly reserved in right. It shows the slight difference between our double jeopardy analysis and our jury instruction analysis. We do not believe that it matters one way or the other in this case because there is absolutely no serious evidentiary dispute as to his intent due to all of the, the evidence that we have in this case. If there are no further questions, we would ask that you affirm Moss's conviction. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Ms. Murray. Mr. Woodward, you have two minutes remaining, sir.
1: Thank you, Your Honor. One thing I want to clarify, um, Judge Wiseman, about Denby. Denby, the holding there was aggravated battery is not an included offense of attempted murder. That was the holding. Murder itself wasn't addressed in Demby, according to my reading of the case. We're talking about murder in this case because we—I do agree, and the the appellant agrees—that aggravated battery is not a lesser included offense of attempted murder because there's no injury involved, or there need not be an injury involved necessarily. Here we have an injury involved under both statutes. You have to injure the person to batter them. You have to injure the person to kill them. Both require knowing action, which is a high probability as the, you know, it's defined by statute. They have the same mens rea element. So that's why it's inherently included.
2: So, to talk to me about whether it matters, the, the fact that a crime <coughs> be inherently included, either inherently included or factually included, but the fact that a crime can be included in another crime, how does that impact our analysis on a jury instruction error issue? Can you speak to that?
1: Yes, because then we go to uh, the the third step in the analysis, and we're gonna assume one and two have been complied with, and is there a serious evidentiary dispute? We just need to look to the record, where the judge says, well, we don't know. The judge said, and, and deliberating,
2: but does Reasoning, the that a, a crime is inherently or factually included raise the, the ire of there being a, a factual dispute because the cases are so similar? Does that, does that help your cause?
1: I'm not sure if it helps the cause or not, I'd have to think that through. But I do know that in this particular case, we have a judge saying, I don't know what happened. That's a jury question. That's why we have juries, to decide these particular issues. And when we look at an abuse of discretion, which is the standard we're applying, was the judge's decision against the logic and effect of the facts and circumstances. We have the judge's own statement to establish that standard. That's why the instruction should have been given. That's my time. Uh, thank you very thank much. You, thank you, Mr. Woodward. Thank
2: you, sir.
0: Okay. That concludes today's argument. and. Uh, Uh, Normally, uh, my colleagues and I would return to uh, uh, our conference room and discuss how we want to rule on this case, and then one of us would write uh, an opinion that would then be distributed to the other two colleagues to either concur dissent. Uh, or there are other options as well. But because we're here at Eastern Hancock uh, uh, High School, uh, we're not going to do that today. And instead, we are going to uh, uh, step down and uh, allow the students to uh, ask us questions. And so we will do that now.